This morning our passage comes from Matthew 6, starting in 19 to 24, and it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus talking about treasure. I have a feeling it's famous or known by most of us, and it really does connect to the next passage on anxiety, though we will talk about that next week. So you can learn about anxiety next week. This week we're going to talk about treasure, but I will warn you, this passage is one of those passages that exposes you. Right, So if you're ready to be exposed, stand up and let's read the, hear the Word of God. Please rise now. Everyone's ready. We're starting at verse 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come to you now as we read this passage, praying that you would expose our hearts, but also show us your love and mercy, that we may be encouraged by these words. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There's been a show I've watched off and on for a long time now, Antiques Roadshow. It's the kind of show I'll be flipping. I'm kind of, it's kind of boring now compared to new, uh, new, more um, re- relevant or exciting reality TV. But still, it's, every now and then it catches you. And if you haven't seen it, it's done by PBS. They travel around the country and they invite people to bring in things that might be of value. And then the expert tells the person, all about it, good and bad, here's what went wrong, here's what's fake, here's the amazing thing. And then they give the price. Uh, and it's really fun to kind of see that. And I, I went ahead and researched, I wondered what was the best find they had ever had. And it was actually in 2011, here in Tulsa, there in Tulsa, near us. And a man, he came in with these like rhinoceros bowls. They've been carved from rhinoceros tusks, so you can imagine how old. And they were like 17th century Chinese and he knew they had some value, but he had started buying them in the 70s. Uh, I think the first one he spent $500. He didn't have a lot of money. He said the trip in England was cut short. And they had, as they bantered back and forth, you could kind of see the appraiser just kind of shaking as he was pointing out things and, and holding the little items. Well, at the very end, they said, okay, so all told, how much did you spend? And he had spent some money. He spent $5,000 over time on five different little items. Uh, well, the man said, do you have any idea of their worth? He said, I'm sure they're worth a pretty good amount. But he, I don't, I don't know. I don't think they're worth that. You know, it's not a fortune. But, And the answer was, conservatively, $1 to $1.5 million for these five items. And what's amazing is that these five items were purchased from professionals. He didn't go to some old lady's house and kind of like, oh, I'll take this for $5. He went into knowledgeable people's homes or uh, shops and said, I love that. I collect this. How much does it cost? And paid 
a lot of money. But for some reason, he saw the beauty. He didn't care at all about profit. He saw the beauty in these items that none of these folks who were professionals had any idea about. It was interesting. After the, I watched it, the recording of it, after, um, after the moment where he heard the number, he said, I need an inhaler. He said, I don't even have asthma. And I loved it because the appraiser said, you pursued something you loved. That was the exact words of the appraiser. You went after something you loved, and indeed, it's very valuable. I think we might be like the people selling the items when it comes to the gospel and the kingdom. I think we know there's value, but we'll take 500. We'll take 1,000. We don't know the full value of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, this, the value of the kingdom is far greater than we've ever thought or hoped. And the reality of this passage is that Jesus, first of all, sees the, the value in you. He sees the value in his people. And he has gone to great lengths to pursue us. And what we'll find is that is why, as Christians, we can now embrace the full value of the kingdom with joy, with confidence. And and instead of feeling anxious, instead of feeling uh, nervous, instead of reading this passage and wondering, how are we going to accomplish it? I hope as we go forward in the next few minutes, you'll realize Jesus is the one who accomplished this for us. Now we can go forward in confidence. So we'll look at the three things. Treasures, which is really the overarching concept. And then he gives two sub-disciplines or sub-methods of testing and improving your treasuring through the eye and through what you serve. So we'll look at all three of those things. So beginning with treasures, um, this verse says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but in heaven. And I think the, the question that you have to ask is, well, what are earthly treasures? What am I supposed to be avoiding, right? And so he gives two he gives two things to watch out for. Decay, if something can decay or something can be stolen, right? So the first part, decay, right? He says, watch out for moth and rust. If they can come in and decay it, then, then it's of earth, right? Or, or secondly, if someone can break in and steal it, then it's of the earth. It's earthly. That kind of, what does that include? Just money? No, it includes everything created. Jesus is giving an amazing way of saying nothing on this earth is worth to be, is worthy to be treasured in the way he's talking about. So treasuring. So he says, lay up therefore yourself treasures in heaven. Now the word for treasure can be either the item in, let's say, the, in the treasure box, let's say, or the whole box itself, right? And when you talk about treasures in heaven, it, it seems like what Jesus is not, he's not saying, go out and do things. I think most people interpret it this way. Go out and do things, like be kind, you know, give to this person, forgive over there. Great things, and that's treasure in heaven. I think he's talking about the location of heaven as being the source of your treasure in complete unity. And that would be, Treasure what is in heaven. This whole sermon, remember, part of the process is Jesus saying, heaven has come. He, he begins the sermon in a way by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's not think of treasuring in heaven as something we're sort of doing by behavior for some future day. But it's where do you find value? And, and that's why I want to draw attention to the verb for lay up. He says, do not lay up treasures on earth, and then verse 20, but do lay up treasure in heaven. And the actual verb there 
is the same word as the noun. Treasure. Do not treasure treasures on earth. Rather, treasure treasures in heaven. And so, I think to understand this, we have to really go do the hard work of asking, what do we treasure? Like, why do you treasure stuff? Right? Why, uh, watching um, the Antiques Roadshow, does something look like a piece of junk until it's worth a million dollars? What happens? What happens when you think in terms of like the lottery? If I won that, what happens is we think that item or that thing or that circumstance will complete me. So when we treasure something, we're actually saying in our hearts, this thing will in some way give me completion. This person, this idea, this job, obviously this money, this possession, this reality in my life. Um, I, I may have said this before here, but for some reason this just really sticks out of my mind that when I was in sixth grade, I hated the new fall fashions, which were Converse shoes. I hated, the, I hated them. Everyone was wearing Converse, high tops, pegging their jeans, and wearing jean jackets. Now that's come always full circle, and it looks cute now, Meredith. It's great. But back then in the sixth grade, I did not like it. But I, I still remember on being on the escalator with my mom, say six weeks later, with my Converse shoes and my new jean jacket. What had happened? I got teal Converse shoes, and I think I traded one, so you had to have one yellow, and you had to do all that. Did I? What, what happened was the items themselves didn't change, but I realized, probably without realizing I realized it, that that's kind of what you needed to do to be accepted by the jury of your peers. And that's where life is for a, you know, for a young person and for another old person as well. And so without even realizing it, my flesh was like, these must be special. These must be valuable because everybody's wearing them. So I began to treasure them and probably hounding my mom every day after school. And eventually we headed to the mall and got these shoes and jean jacket and pegged pant legs. And it looked awesome on a little skinny kid that's 10 years old, 12 years old, whatever. But it shows the power of our heart. We can take any item and treasure it because we are saying with our heart, this will give me life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. What is it you treasure? Are you looking for life with earthly things? Or are you looking to the One who's in heaven for your treasure? And He graciously gives us two tests or two ways we can see what we're treasuring and also improve what we're treasuring. So we'll start with the eye. He says in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. It looks like he's going into a new idea, but he's not. Because he says, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What Jesus is saying, he just talked about how the heart, where the heart is is where treasure is. Now he's saying where you, what you look at will really determine what you value. Um, I remember in seminary, I had a professor who had everyone sign up for a certain time to meet with him to go to a burger place near the campus. He was excited because the seminary paid for it. So he got this free lunch. He got to sit out with the student. I was excited because this professor is going to pour into my life. Well, it happened to be the day March Madness began, and he positioned himself for the whole conversation. He's watching Mizzou. Hopefully lose. I can't remember. Um, and I'm sitting there looking at him like, you're not even listening to me. You're not even looking at me. 
Now, he probably thought I had a great conversation with that guy. I hope I helped him. I thought, really? You're going to look over my head the whole conversation? Um, so what you, we know instinctively that where your eyes are determines really what you love. And when someone's trying to talk to you and they're not looking at you, that, that says something to you. Well, in the same way, we, we are looking really at what we love, and so it, it informs us of where our heart is. What are we gazing at? Jesus has given us a, a, a test. What is it we're looking at? I mean, it would be interesting. There's a program called Safe Eyes, or no, Covenant Eyes, and it, and it reports everything you've looked at to people on, on the Internet. Can you imagine if we had that for all of life? I know policemen now have the, the, the camera on, the, on their uniform, but can you imagine if at any point a buddy could go, let me look at everything you looked at today. You just start clicking, just physically looked at. But of course, Jesus is using this even as a metaphor of what you're thinking about, what your thoughts are going to, that it reveals what you think will save you, right? So he's further illustrating it. But he's also saying, however, here's the good news, what you, when you look at good things, you can change. When you look to good things, the heart can be filled with light, Right? In Psalm 121, this, this idea, he said, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So, it's not just saying, if you guys are looking at the wrong things, you're in trouble. It's saying, how about we start looking at the right things to start seeing Scripture and start seeing, uh, if, we, if we're looking, for example, at fellowship. We're looking at worship. Again, it's, it's participation in. These are ways that the Scripture gets into us and where our eyes can lead us to the light and change our viewpoint. But it's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. Um, if you watch the Masters this year, uh, I don't. Have, I love to watch the Masters because I'm so good at golf. Right, Chris? Um, I'm really bad. I've gotten really bad at golf. It's very embarrassing. So you'll never see me golfing anytime soon. But Ben Crenshaw played his last Masters, and I've grown up watching him play, but as the media is wont to do, they're good at making you like someone better than you probably did. So I'm like, oh, he's amazing, he's awesome. And they showed his very first Masters win. And it's really, it was a neat little story, because the very next day after his first win, I think it was 1984, he wins the green jacket, which is, by the way, if you don't know, that's like the trophy in all of golf, right? Everyone wants the green jacket. Well, it shows his daughter at show and tell the next day in her little classroom. I th- she may have been like seven or eight and back in Austin. I think it was the next day, or at least it was that week. And she pulls out for show and tell the green jacket. And they didn't really say this. Of course, Jim Nance like, that was amazing. How amazing and fitting. But what I could kind of tell was that he had a room full of little kids going, big freaking deal, you know? My dad's got a red jacket. My, I've seen orange jackets. The kid going next, I've got a pencil with like dollar bills crumbled up inside of it. Wait till they see this. However, and so you start hearing the teacher go, guys, this is like from the masters. And you know, you know I'm sure, you know, I just, children didn't know. But I bet most of those kids now would watch that replay and go, I touched that jacket. I felt it. I saw it. It's amazing. And so in one sense, this could be an illustration for wrong treasures. But really, I'm using it to say, they saw something, and then they had to be told, this is a value. And at first they may have said, I don't get it. But if they start watching the tournament, 
And as they grow up, they probably start year after year going, okay, I'm remembering that thing. And it's having more and more value as we go. And so, gazing at something at first that means nothing to you. Maybe opening the Bible is just like, I don't see it. But be faithful. Because the Spirit is present and He can reveal the beauty in His Scripture or in prayer and fasting and and repenting and and all these things. And in Psalm 119 we see this where, where the psalmist says, The Word is the lamp unto my feet, the light unto my path. So we read and we look at Scripture and it begins to fill us. But when we gaze at other things that are dark, we, we wonder, why do I have so much darkness? What, why all this spiritual warfare? Well, maybe because I'm thinking and feasting on other things. So the eye. The final example he gives is serving. He says in one verse, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he, that's really an amazing idea. And there's two thoughts in that verse. But the first is this idea that you cannot serve two masters. I think as Americans, we are, maybe I shouldn't say Americans, as modern people who are highly unfocused, highly multitaskers, we would challenge that, wouldn't we? Oh, I can focus on two things at once. All the studies come out and say you can only have one thing in your mind at a time. Oh, no, I'm a great multitasker. We all have to pretend. But all the studies show that you become worse at both things that you're multitasking at. All the science reveals what Jesus is saying. You cannot pursue two things at once. And so, are we serving the kingdom or are we serving created things? So that's the first thought. But he even goes a little further, and that is this. You can't do neither. Right? That's the thing I think Americans want. I think we want to say, I don't want to serve anybody. I don't want to be served. Or at least I just want to be left alone. But in the Scriptures, we see several places where we find out you're serving something. In Romans 6, Paul says, you cannot serve sin. If you get the Gospel, you will not serve sin. How can you serve sin if you're a slave of righteousness? And you want to scratch your head and go, that's like an oxymoron. But what he's revealing is our hearts are designed to focus on a direction. Our hearts are actually made to to be driven by affections. And that's what, in Jonathan Edwards' book on religious affections, or a treatise on religious affections, he uncovers this. He says, if the world had no affections, they would cease to work. But we all like to believe we work for logical reasons. I need food on the table. It helps the economy. You don't. We don't. We do things because our heart believes they're important and we're driven by affections. And so what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples is that our affections need to be shaped around him. Now, for one minute, I want to draw your attention to a quote that's in your worship guide. And then I want to close this up in a few moments. But if you'll turn in your worship guide to the quote from Frederick Buechner, I want to try to show us that Jesus is not just giving us a lot of weighty things to do. That's not what He's doing. But Jesus is rather revealing the way the world works. So listen to this quote. The Bible is not, first of all, a book of moral truth. I would call it instead a book of truth about the way life is. 
those strange old scriptures present life as having been ordered in a certain way with certain laws as inextricably built into it as the law of gravity is built into the physical universe. When Jesus says that whoever would save his life will lose it, or whoever loses his life will save it, surely he is not making a statement about how morally speaking life ought to be. Rather, he is making a statement about how life is. Now that may seem very obvious to some people. For me, that was somewhat eye-opening, that Jesus is not sitting here going, I'm trying to start a religion, and I've got some really good ideas. And then they ended up being okay ideas. He is saying, I am the one who invented the universe. And what I am telling you is not what I want you to do to please me. What I am revealing to you is the way you were designed. And we were designed with affections to be aimed at our Father. And because we've been redeemed, we can now have Him as our treasure. The treasure in heaven. And that is the point that the sermon keeps making over and over. Uh, that, that, that heaven has come down, right? Sermon on the Mount. It is now near. That word is repeated over and over. Heaven, like 16 or 17 times. But also Father. Heavenly Father. Jesus is saying now you can start moving toward heaven and because of the Spirit, in a sense, have entered heaven because of the first fruits to love your Father, to know your Father, to be intimate with your Father. And I want to draw our attention now to two verses on treasure in Matthew 13 to kind of just make the point a little more. There's two parables that are one verse each in Matthew 13 dealing with treasure. The first says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The next one, chapter 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Exactly, This is two verses, verse 46 who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, is, are you able, knowing about the kingdom, to go sell everything you have and pursue it with all you have? The answer is no. That is not what these parables are talking about. Jesus is explaining, if you go back one more step, how He is the one who sows the seed. He is the operative. He is doing the thing. And then He says in these two parables, or at the end of that when He's explaining to His disciples, the righteous will shine like the sun, talking about the end of time, and the kingdom of their Father, sorry, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And he says, the kingdom is like treasure in a field where a man goes out, finds the treasure, and sells all that he has. That's Jesus. So here's my question. Do you believe that Jesus has given all he has for you? And when you read a verse like the pearl of great price, we all talk about, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. Are you the merchant or is Jesus? 
Jesus is the merchant who goes out and sells all he has to have that pearl. I believe what hinders our discipleship more than anything else is unbelief. I think we read verses like Matthew 6, and and there's three responses. The unbeliever thinks, not interested. The nominal Christian thinks, uh, that's nice. Maybe someday I'll work up an energy to do that. But the disciple looks at that and says, I want that, and I need Jesus. I want that, and I need to recognize He pursued me. He treasured me with undivided attention and has redeemed me. And He loves me and He loves His kingdom and He loves His church, but you have to see yourself as a daughter or a son of the King. Or discipleship will go nowhere. And the whole sermon will lose any value to you. Is that how you see yourself? As the one Jesus pursued? So practically speaking, I do think in response to that, we have something we can do. And this is the beauty of the whole sermon. You don't need to go and change, because you can't. Except you need to go and pray. Lord, I am drawn to this. Lord, I am so ambitious about my career, I need your help. Help me to see how I can trust you. See, we're afraid that if we just turn over to Jesus, he's going to make us fail, aren't we? We're afraid he's not good. We're afraid that if we don't worship a person like in a relationship and we let go and worship Jesus first, that that person is not going to like us. And that God's going to make us single for the rest of our lives. But Jesus is saying, trust me and give me everything. And we simply pray, Lord, I need you to open my eyes to give me the ears to hear this. And he will then be your treasure. Right? At least he'll begin to be your treasure. I think we always will struggle this side of heaven. We'll have some things that we're drawn to and we're not going to Christ in. And we lose sight of Him. But you can always go back in repentance and faith to the One who loves you, to the One who cherishes you, to the One who sold everything and gave everything to pursue you.